what I think is really interesting in talking with people who have sort of made it into self-employment and they're already there, one of the reasons they believe it's much more stable is they believe that, you know, they don't have one employer who at any day could, you know, make some strategic decision and then, you know, that changes their job uh, 100%, whereas they have a portfolio or a book of clients and, you know, one client could leave, but it would really take a lot for an entire book of clients in one day to say, hey, I, I don't need that anymore. So they just feel like when they build their own book, that's actually creating more stability than they would ever get in a, in a traditional job. This is the Angles of Latitude podcast, session number 160 with Vice President of Corporate Strategy and International Expansion at FreshBooks, Matt Baker. This is squadron leader confirming hostiles inbound. Prepare for battle. What you're about to hear is the integration of life. Clarity is power. If you live each day as if it was your last, someday you'll most certainly be right. Liberty. We choose to go to the moon. It's happening. And all things geek. Yeah, I'm not sure I know how to answer that. Uh, you got a badass over here. Welcome to the Angles of Latitude podcast. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us for the session of the Angles of Latitude podcast. Today's hosts are myself, JC Preston, and with me as co host, is a new co-host, Annie Dix, of the Hopeful Hoosier podcast. If this is the first time you're listening in, this is a show where we bring you life lessons or a message from successful entrepreneurs, experts, athletes, and artists. And it's our hope that it will help you find and execute your own personal mission and live a lifestyle that you're proud of. You know, I just had my birthday this week, and for the last 15 or so years, it's, it's been a sign that the end of the year was, was quickly approaching. And when I was back at Purdue, it always gave me an impending feeling of dread. And it was you know, it was telling me that it was time to hunker down and, and finish up big projects. However, after I graduated, it became a time for, for me to reflect. And in that sense, you know, 2019 has been an amazing year. And although one that totally flew by, there have been plenty of, of seeds planted, which I believe will be great harvest in the upcoming years. And of course, you can't forget the fact that I'm now a dad. So that's, uh, that's something else, right? One thing that the end of the year always brings is taxes. And for the most of the U.S., people can't wait to get their W-2s turned in so that they can get their refunds as quickly as possible. However, for us business owners, things uh, are typically a bit more complex than that. You know, more often than not, we tend to owe money. And so that means that if we can bring that amount down that we owe to the IRS, we're going to do it. And so one of the ways to actually do that is through itemizing uh, our business expenses. Among other things, FreshBooks makes this process of itemization relatively easy. And in this session's chat, Andy and I are speaking with Matt Baker, who gives us plenty to think about when it comes to why we should be keeping track of our numbers as business owners. In our conversation today, we talk about the process of de-risking the move to self-employment, steps that one can take to have better control on their career, and what financial numbers business owners should be paying more attention to. Of course, if you like what you hear in this interview, I highly recommend you check out FreshBooks yourself. In fact, if you go through our affiliate link at newinceptions.com slash FreshBooks, you'll be able to save significantly on your new membership. All right, before we get started with Matt, remember to subscribe to the show on whichever platform you're listening on. 
And of course, we always want to hear from you. So leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or shoot us an email at heyguys at newinceptions.com with any current issues that you're going through while you're building and scaling your business. Again, that email is heyguys at newinceptions.com. Show notes and show note extras of the show can be found at newinceptions.com slash 160. And as usual, I'll be on at the end of the show to fill you in on anything we might have missed. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the show. This is JC Preston. With me is a new co-host to the show, Andy Dix. Andy recently appeared on the show as a guest with Harris and I for Session 154. Welcome, Andy. How you doing? Hey, great. And, and it's great to be back, JC. And now in the host chair, which is a lot more comfortable than being under the spotlight of the guest chair, let me tell you. <laughs> well, it's something that you're used to. And uh, again, people can check out your podcast over at Hopeful Hoosier Podcast, correct? That's correct. Yeah. The Hopeful Hoosier podcast at hopefulhoosier.podbean.com. Awesome. Awesome. And you can, if you guys want to go back into our library of uh, interviews, he was actually session 154. So again, Andy, thanks for being here. And uh, how are you? You know, I'm super. And today is going to be a great day. Uh, You that are listening, you've got somebody really special um, to hear about today. and, And I can't wait to get into today's conversation. Because our guest is a money strategist and a business coach who's very passionate about helping entrepreneurs solve their most challenging roadblocks. And on top of this, he acts as VP of corporate strategy and international expansion at a rising high-tech company called FreshBooks. And I'm sure he'll tell us a little bit more about that. Um, When he's not helping businesses grow, though, you can find him teaching change management at UC Berkeley. Or he's also on the board of the Next Steps Learning Center in Oakland. And today we're talking to the amazing Matt Baker of FreshBooks.com. Matt, thanks for coming on the show. How are you today? Well, thank you. That was certainly a kind introduction. I'm doing quite well. How about yourself? Awesome. And, and you are where today? You're, you're out in Silicon Valley, yes? That's right. I'm sort of across the bay in Oakland, California, uh, working from home. What a great gig. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <no. laughs> well, I'm looking at cornfields right now. How about you, Andy? <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I'm in the tenacious studio in, in the basement of the house. Uh, the, so the bunker. Yeah, I don't have a view at all. Right? You're in the bunker. Yeah. So yeah, lots of things that we can definitely dive in here today. So um, if we were to actually watch a Disney movie, and again, Disney owns so many different types of franchises these days. So, you know, it can be really kind of any genre as opposed to the ones we all grew up with. What genre would it be and where would it start in your story <laughs> uh, okay a disney movie about about me really um oh man i think I, I would love it to be some kind of uh you know adventure um global adventure genre so mm. uh you know um traveling around the world and uh you know ultimately coming back to some things that uh, that you started with but you kind of learn a lot along the way okay cool Cool. And I noticed that you have a background in uh, change management and I have a background in organizational leadership, which part of that is change management. And in fact, one of my, uh, when I was in grad school, one of my committee members, um, he taught change management there at Purdue. Uh, what actually got you into that world to begin with? Well, I, I, I've always been fascinated by sort of this idea of change being such a great thing to happen in the world and everybody is excited about change. And then on an individual level, everyone by and large doesn't like change. Mm -hmm. Um, 
you know, and, and being a little bit, you know, um, uh, extreme here to make to make the point, but it always fascinated me that you know, it's almost like you know, I only want a certain type of change, and all this other change, I just want to do without. Um, but you can't really pick the the sort of change that you get. And um, I've also been interested in in being able to teach classes and give and give back. And so that was a great topic for me to to lean into because it starts a lot with person. I mean, everybody. Um, that is a student of mine. For the most part, they're um, they're coming back and doing some some work, and they have a job. And so it's easy to say to start off any class or any conversation with, "Tell me about some change at work. Tell me about mm-hmm. something that changed, and then tell me how did it feel." And it's sort of you know eight eight or nine times out of ten, it's it's an opportunity for them to talk about how they didn't like that change. Um, and again, you know, just to juxtapose that with this idea that, but they know the organization has to change. They know the market's changing. They know that change is an important part of competing. And so to me that, you know, just continuing to kind of, you know, peel the onion on those, those two things and learning or just having the mindset to embrace change opens up a lot of opportunities for people. So I I really enjoy it. It's partly, it's partly business, but it's also very psychological. It's sort of uh, behavioral in some ways. So I think it's, it's nice that it touches on a few different disciplines. Mm, Love it. Love it. But you haven't always been this uh, awesome person that you are today, being able to teach uh, college uh, courses. Um, where where did your career start out that actually led you into you know getting these experiences that you've been able to take to um, even working with Google, for example? Yeah, you know it's it's always interesting too where to start on that journey. I mean, I think the 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 thing that always sticks in my mind is when I graduated uh, undergrad, I sort of still didn't know what I wanted to do. Mm. And to me, that's what set off a trigger, you know, a series of events that ultimately, you know, kind of led to where I am today. The first thing I did was say, well, I want to see the world. Uh, And so I went to uh, Spain and France for about a year, year year or two um, and taught English at a high school there. Um, Mm. But, but knew it wasn't a long-term thing, but, but um, just wanted to, you know, sort of get out of, I grew up in, suburban Michigan and just wanted to explore and get out and, you know, do that sort of thing. And so that kind of opened, opened up the world a bit, uh, which was, which, which was great. And when I came back, wanted to get into an industry that I felt was, uh, was going through a lot of change and was exciting. And that's when I, um, made the move into the tech industry and luckily found, found a role, um, at, at Google. And, um, as I got more experience there, I started focusing more on small business related software and technology it's products today that are often called Google for work, or they were called uh, Google apps, but it's a package of um, collaboration tools like email and calendar and docs for, for small businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've sort of stayed one way or another in the small business software market since then, which has been a great opportunity to stay, you know, to always stay uh, present with who are small businesses, you know, whether you're calling yourself a freelancer or a self-employed pro or an agency owner or, you know, tradesperson. Ultimately, you know, they all, one version uh, of a small small business or not, and um, you know just continuing to go deep there, and I think understanding what it's like to to be a small business owner in terms of the benefits and the trade offs and why people do it, you know that continues to pay dividends and helps me build build my career and and find ways to to, to serve that serve that market. And today at at FreshBooks, we you know are a, uh, an invoicing and accounting software for people who work for themselves. So. It's essentially, you know, the kind of person that's got to wear all the hats in the business. And so we're ho- hoping to, you know, automate or make, you know, really easy some of those, some of those hats you got to wear. Right. For sure. For sure. And at, like you, I've kind of had a bit of a, uh, <laughs> bit of a journey since my, my undergrad years. Um, in fact, I was really my first two 
uh, internships that told me that mm, maybe you should go back to grad school because you're not going to be an electrical engineer. And if you are, you're going to be miserable. So, <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely understand that, you know, how that journey can take you into routes that you've never seen and or even thought that you would have gone down through. And another thing that I've realized that in the last 10 years is when it, you're talking about the, the college world, there are some, I've met plenty of people, including my wife, who haven't really need to get a degree to be a contributor to society. And we all know, you know, really the story is of the Mark Zuckerbergs and the Steve Jobs of the world where they, you know, they drop out to do amazing work. But I also see things from uh, Mike Rowe and what he does with Mike Rowe Works that, you know, college today isn't really for, for everyone. I mean, there was such a push when I was growing up to get everybody to go to school, but now you're seeing such a loss in leadership which I think a lot of leaders go into entrepreneurship and or getting people started in the trades. So what's, what's your take on, on all that? What have you seen? Yeah, for, for me, it lives in sort of two buckets. The first one, by and large, is the cost. And, and I think a, a, the, the, the pushback against going, I think, is sometimes a, you know, sort of like a business case. And given the accelerated cost of attending, um, the trade-off is sort of like, well, how long is it going to take me to earn that back versus if I just go, go to, to work, to work now. Uh, so, so partly for me, I believe that's part. And I believe that the, uh, the cost is just, it's getting out, out of control in a lot of ways. And it's, mm. you know, sometimes it's like when you see a price, you sort of have to now pretend, you know, you have to treat a school like you're buying a car, or buying a mattress, and, and you know, you're not going to pay that price. And so you got to go underneath it and try to figure out, okay, what's the real cost to attend? Um, and, uh, you know, it's still, like I said, still going up and still a lot of money. And, um, you know, so that's a whole, Bucket, I could spend more time on that one, but uh, <laughs> I think that's, you know, that's point number one is you start, once the cost gets so high, you start to say, well, is it really worth it? Um, so that's kind of number one. And then number two is, um, I think you're spot on with some of the, the roles out there. The, the, the university system is not necessarily going to help you land that job. And we see it a lot with what we would call creative professionals. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of people that are graphic designers, um, they're uh, running like a web design agency, um, they're digital marketers. It could even be photographers. And there are absolutely classes out there for all those things I just mentioned. But your traditional liberal arts degree may not be the best path to get into something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so through some of the research we've done where we've tried to ask people, you know, do you have a, a, a university degree or not? And what, what, you know, what are you doing today sort of thing? Um, it does seem like more and more people are working for themselves um, and skipping school altogether. Um, you know, which is a, it's, it, it's a risk and it's a bet that, you know, they're placing, but they're sort of, you know, feeling like they can, um, build a career and they can get the skills and they can, uh, you know, sort of upskill themselves over time on their own versus doing it through, through school. I mean, there's an argument that can be made that employers, um, one of the best values they provide to their employees is to continuously upskill them. Otherwise, mm-hmm. um, you know, once you get out of university, uh, you know, you, you have a foundation, but it doesn't necessarily meet, meet the job requirement. Yeah. 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 And that's, that's something that I would definitely agree on. And in fact, one of the things that, uh, uh, Andy and I are working with a community here in, in Indianapolis is called Amplify Indy. And one of the things that we're looking at is actually developing a series of talks and curriculum and, and, uh, you know, your, your lunch and learns that, actually start teaching things that you don't learn in school. And there's, there's just a, a huge need for a lot of that information. You know, regardless of a person's particular gra- background and, and starting one's old business is, is always daunting. 
And, you know, maybe it's not because of the actual work that they need to do themselves, but potentially just the support of society, friends, family, etc. You know, many people, when they're wanting to go, whether into self-employment, whether or not they have a college background, a corporate background, whatever their background is, they get a lot of different messages about whether or not to be their own boss is something that is seen as the safe route. I, you know, there's going to be, again, what you were saying is that some people would rather bet on themselves versus, again, go on the route that their parents went down. How can someone actually de-risk that particular move to self-employment? Well, I, I think that's a, I think that's a great question. I got, I got a bunch of uh, uh, things that, that we've heard and, you know, we've, we've tried to apply it with data. So hopefully, it, you know, adds a little bit of, a bit of credibility to it. But before I get into like the one thing to do to start de-risking, I just wanted to share what I think is really interesting in talking with people who have sort of made it into self-employment and they're already there. One of the reasons they believe um, it's much, uh, much more stable is they believe that, you know, they don't have one employer who at any day could, you know, make some strategic decision. And then, you know, that changes their job hundred uh, percent. Whereas mm-hmm. they have a portfolio or a book of clients and, you know, one client could leave, but it would really take a lot for an entire book of clients in one day to say, Hey, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I don't need that anymore. So they just feel like when they build their own book, that's actually creating more stability than they would ever get in a, in a traditional job. Right. Um, and, and I just, I love that, 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 that point of view is just, it's an empowering one. And you could argue, um, you know, that it's not that black and white in the real world, but at the same time, I, I, um, you know, I, I'm always excited when I hear somebody think about it that way. And then just on this concept of de-risking, what we did with the research is ask people, what's, what's stopping you so that we could understand what are the things that you would, you know, what are the barriers you'd start to try to tackle and, and, you know, and kind of de-risk the whole proposition of moving from a traditional job to career independence or self-employment, however you phrase it. And we, uh, through that questionnaire, we sort of collected the data and found out um, there's some that we would call hard barriers and some that we would call soft barriers. And so the hard barriers were the people that said, look, really, I just, I don't have enough cash or I don't have the competency yet or the training yet to do that job. Um, Or something that we also called a hard barrier was, I don't want to give up my health benefits. Um, and it's something that, you know, so we, we hear those quite a bit the, of those three that I mentioned, um, it's this, uh, Hey, sometimes I need the cash to get this thing started. That, that comes up most often. Um, but all those top three that I mentioned, um, you know, people, um, um, communicate as, you know, real, real barriers to getting there. And then on the other side of the thing, what we grouped as soft barriers, not to say that they're, um, you know, not as important. And sometimes, you know, sometimes even more important, but soft as in um, it's more of a, a worry um, that's holding you back versus uh, you know, a fact. So an example would be we found three to four out of 10 say, you know, I'm really worried about inconsistent income. And it is a real thing to worry about because we know that you know, people who work for themselves with these different revenue streams tend to have a lumpy income, as I would call it. Um, and it's not it's the same as a paycheck every two weeks or a paycheck at the end of every, every month. And so you have to have a little bit more foresight to know, you know how to help yourself through those peaks and valleys. Right. Uh, the, other, the other thing we hear is a worry about earning less. And in fact, you know, in reality, some people do earn less. And to some people that's you know, okay if they get all the other benefits of self-employment. But there's a worry there of, you know, particularly if I have a job today, I know what I'm getting paid. And if I move into this other world, um, you know, that can be a bit scary. Some people um, shared with us a lack of uh, feeling like they had a business plan. So the confidence, you know, is how I interpret that. 
Um, some folks say, you know, I'd really love to work for myself, but I don't know exactly what to do yet. I don't know what skill I can go out into the world and, 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 and present. And then there is a group, too, that um, has communicated with us that they're, they're, they're feeling um, you know, still somewhat loyal to their company. And so there's, mm. to, me, to me, that comes down to a little bit of timing. Like, you know, maybe, maybe today is not the day I'm going to do it. But, um, but uh, when I add it all up, you know, I think that both, you know, the way that uh, private companies are working and the way that the, the economy is shifting, like, I, I do think a lot of these barriers are going to be addressed, which is really exciting. And it gets <laughs> to the point of where if somebody wants to do it, they should be, be, be able to versus um, the healthcare one is the one in particular that I find sometimes the, the, the most interesting because there's structurally this way that um, when you have an employer, they sort of help you through that process. And when you're on your own, you're, you're literally kind of on your own sometimes. So um, that's one that I think, you know, can, can get resolved over time, but it does, you know, it certainly doesn't happen overnight. You know, and you, you bring up the being alone factor and, and just how people generally sometimes don't feel connected unless they network a whole bunch or maybe a year or two down the line where they, they know other entrepreneurs that are in the same similar boats as they are. In, in Indianapolis, I know that the struggle is real for a lot of folks. If someone is wanting to actually start a business, yes, there's a, a good tech startup scene here in Indianapolis, but what would you recommend to those that are alone in the cornfields in the Midwest wanting to start their own business as far as just getting off the ground? I, I like that question. I think, again, two, two things kind of come to my mind. One, one is around just simply how to get started. And then one is around what would I recommend somebody do to set themselves up for long-term success? Mm. Um, if I think about just getting started, it, it is nice that today there are a lot of platforms that allow you to take on it, what, I, you know, what you might call independent work. Um, what I mean by that is, you know, you, you'd be familiar with platforms like Uber if you just want to, you know, see what it's like to have your own schedule. Or there's a platform like Upwork where you can provide some services online and they do some matchmaking. Or there's a program uh, or a platform like Thumbtack where if you're in the trades area, you can, you know, get access to new clients and, you know, kind of fill out your schedule. So I think just to get started, uh, I... I think it's really interesting and a really low risk way to just take on some of this work and see if you like, you know, kind of the, this feeling of your, your, your own boss, um, you're setting your own schedule, you're in charge of, uh, you know, making sure that that client has a good experience. And so I think it's a great way to get started. I would say this is, I think it's hard to build a long term success on platforms like that, simply because those platforms become what the client views as their, uh, their primary relationship. Uh, mm -hmm. For instance, when I use Uber, you know, I kind of feel like I'm paying Uber. I don't necessarily feel like I have a one-to-one -one relationship with, with this driver. Or, you know, an example would be if I, you know, maybe stay somewhere as an Airbnb. Um, certainly, I can uh, talk directly to the, to, to the homeowner or to the person that's in charge of that property. But larger issues, I would take up probably with, with Airbnb directly. Um, so I just think in, in, in the long run, it's hard to live on these platforms where they represent the, the brand and they're setting the price and they're doing some of those things. So that's the segue for me of if I'm giving somebody some advice, you know, get your feet wet. There's a lot of ways to do that. But if you mm -hmm. really want to be self-employed, to me, the number one thing to do is to build your sales ability. Um, you can call it prospecting. You can call it lead generation. You could call it sales, what, what have you. But your ability to go out and get your own clients is, to me, the number one thing that will enable you to have long-term success. 
when we looked at our data, a lot of people say they spend maybe 20% of their time on prospecting. So that to me seems like that's about the, the norm. And so it doesn't mean that you have to be, you know, a salesman at heart, but it means that you have to be able to pull, you have to be able to generate that interest. Um, you have to be able to think about how am I going to reach out in this community? Who am I going to network with? And then how am I going to get excited about what I can offer um, and, and then close a deal? And it's something that to me, you'll do over and over again when you're self-employed. And it's something that a lot of people try to shy away from because it's sometimes, you know, really challenging. And, and frankly, you know, it, when, when you're in sales, like it, it involves a lot of rejection sometimes, um, you know, you're constantly having to shift and, and change how you're thinking about, you know, pr- proposing your service so that it's seen as a value and not just, you know, paying for a commodity. Um, but certainly that's the, you know, the, anyway, the number one thing is that being able to get your own clients to me, that's going to set anyone apart from, um, from, from, from sort of the, the person who's just, just thinking about making the leap to self-employment. Matt, do you think that social media is creating an unrealistic vision of, of what solopreneurship or entrepreneurship is really like in people's minds? And then when they get into it, uh, they may find the reality of it being very different. Yeah, well, I think social media kind of has two, two in my mind, two, two things that you got to watch out for, two watch, you know, kind of watch outs. One, one is the fact that um, a lot of people indicate that it's really, really tough to use social media to, to drive uh, business for yourself. Um, and then, but there's this belief that you got to do it. So then people kind of, you know, end up doing it, but not really getting the gains. And that's kind of the worst spot. It, it's almost better sometimes to say, I'm not going to do it than to do it, but not, you know, be capable of it. And I think we saw that over half of the people try to do it themselves because it's not something that they quite want to pay for yet. Um, and so they're out there, you know, posting on various platforms and it's just, um, it's, it's a challenge. So I think, you know, that's number one is, is, you know, is social media really a, a great way for your business to, to, to bring in uh, interest or not, um, and, and kind of kind of pick there. And then secondly, um, all in my mind, uh, you know, I sometimes joke around with people uh, just thinking about social media, call it the curated life. And, um, you know, folks for the by and large are, you know, putting out stuff that, you know, is a positive reinforcement. Um, and so I, I think it does um, paint this picture, but it's not even just self-employment. It's almost like, you know, you take any kind of lifestyle and if you look online, you see, you see the best of that, of that lifestyle. And I think that can be, that can be um, misleading. And, and that's part of the reason why when we, when we looked at the data, we tried to say, what are your expectations going into this uh, self-employment? And then, and then what's the reality um, coming out? And we found, for instance, um, if, if I think of on the, uh, like on a, on a negative perception side, we found that people thought they would be lonelier than they actually are. So, you know, the mixed conception being, oh, I'm going to quit my job and go work for myself and I'm going to be all alone. Um, now, there's certain people that say, yeah, I am lonelier working for myself than I was when I was going to the office, but it's nowhere near the expectation that it was going to happen. And so that's a good thing. Um, and on the flip side, though, um, that's curated life. The example would be some people say, you know, I'm going to go work for myself and I'm going to make more money. What we found in our data is that it's, it's not as true as people want it to be. So certainly a big chunk, I'm trying to remember the data off the top of my head, I think 30, 40%, something like that, did in fact make more, but it wasn't as high as, you know, the 50 or 60% that thought they would, right? And so that sometimes can be a misconception if they're seeing only, they're only seeing online the people who are making it. Um, you know, there's not necessarily a window into the, the, the people that are struggling. And so um, you can kind of, you know, have these expectations that maybe are, are not quite reality. Um, it just if you're just just focusing on the uh, uh, on the media that's out there, 
out on the West Coast where you are, there's a lot of role models for people that they can run into a, into a coffee shop, et cetera. Here in the Midwest, it's it's a little bit different. We we don't see as many visible success stories. So who who would you suggest is is maybe a realistic role model that someone who's really thinking seriously about getting out on their own that that they could start following and and learn more about? Oh wow, great great question. Um my my you know as you were describing that my natural instinct is is really to look local um because i i do think that there's a lot of value in that um i think the, the other thing that's challenging sometimes to find that person is a lot of these um self-employed shops uh self-employed uh businesses they they're not built the same way so they don't necessarily need uh you know office space they don't necessarily need uh, retail retail space and so it's not as though when you walk down main street you're going to see these uh, see these folks so i think there is an opportunity to try to tap into that whether it's through you know the small business network in your community or different events and conferences that are happening the one that i i thought was a great uh um event that i've been a part of before if you say like who would you reach out to and and think of there was um a series of, uh, it's called a breakfast lecture series called Creative Mornings. Um, and they do a bunch throughout the whole, um, uh, throughout the whole country. Um, they, you know, I'd have to double check their map, but let's call it, you know, 20 to 50 cities or something like that. And it's a, um, they host these breakfast sessions where somebody comes up and talks, but it's also, it's just great to meet other people in your community that, um, that are, are doing it. So they get, they offer a little bit of expertise and then they offer the networking, which I think is a great combination of, connecting you to, to, to others. And you could say, you know, are these my people or not sort of, sort of experience. That's great. Another thing that I know you have kind of a passion point around is really regaining control of your career as you, as you go forward. And if you were trying to advise somebody who's looking forward to another, you know, 20, 15, 20 years of employment, first of all, how safe do you think being a W2 employee really is for the foreseeable future? I'm trying to think how I can answer that one in a in a, um, in a concise way because it's so you know issue specific depending on who's who's in, who's responsible for your W two um, you know some of these companies uh, you know certainly are going to be around for another 100, 200 years and you know some some uh, some are not I, I will say this is um, I think the average expectancy for someone to stay for one employer is continuing to go down which is a really interesting trend you know when I think of my parents. They worked for the same employer for over 30 years. Um, you know, that, that sort of mentality, I don't believe, is around anymore. And you could argue it's because, you know, we do um, defined contribution instead of defined benefit pensions. And there's other things that reduce that loyalty to one, to one employer. But the fact that people are moving around so much, I think, actually, you know, um, de-risk this idea that, you know, your employer is going to go away. Um, you know, when I'm hiring someone just as a, a starting point, you know, if they stay around for more than two years, I would say that's probably a good hire. If it's less than two, then, um, you know, probably didn't have the right fit to begin with. And, you know, we can kind of refine our process. Whereas, you know, my guess would have been, you know, 10 years ago, the, you know, that mark would have been, you know, stay for five years. And that was probably the right person. So anyway, the, the, the punchline there is that given that there's so much job movement, there's a little less um, risk of if my employer goes away, can I get another one? But at some point you get, you kind of, you know, get tired of hopping around most likely and, or you decide, you know what, there's just more, I get more out of it if I do it, if I do it myself. Another interesting thing, because you, your company deals with small uh, entrepreneurs, et cetera, from financial back office accounting purposes. 
And so you see people come, you see people go, obviously. How about the person that that has a job, but maybe it doesn't require 100% of their time and attention and they can do the side hustle or the side gigs? Um, do you think that is a valid strategy to test what the future of self-employment could be for somebody? Yeah, I would, I would absolutely um, uh, suggest it. You know, you call it a moonlighter, a side hustle as you do it. Um, I would, you know, I would just caveat that, you know, sometimes people are working hard enough and just to say, okay, now on top of that, take another job, you know, that can be a pretty daunting ask. So, you know, I, I, I think it's important to, you know, treat it as a test and, you know, not um, have this undefined kind of way of how you're going to draw success. But it's a great way to, to see if you can provide a client experience in which somebody, you know, feels like they got, uh, you know, value for what you offered. It's a great way to see if you can, in fact, drum up some business, you know, and then you can do that on the side. Um, if, you know, there are parts of that business that you think, you know, that you can scale or not. So anyway, I, I, I love it as a, as a test. Um, I just think it's, it, it's tough to try to do it. You know, how long can you be committed to it? You know, um, my guess would be, um, you know, you don't want to go years on end doing the side hustle. If really with that, if, if, if your intent is to make that side hustle, your full-time thing, you'd want to have a, you know, a sooner path to kind of get out of what you're doing. But, um, anyway, short answer is I, I think it's, 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 it's getting more and more acceptable and it's a great way to kind of dip your toe in. And I've, I've done, you know, various side projects that have been a great way to, uh, certainly, you know, generate some income, but then you realize, you know what, I, I would not want to be doing this full time. Um, and, and it, it's just, a, you know, it's almost a free way to learn that. And another thing that people are often asking me as a coach is, you know, how do I really get control of my time of, of the life that I want to be living is as a uh, self-employed person. So Help them out there. What do you think are three of the smartest steps that somebody can take to gain control of their career? Well, uh, great question. And I, and I, we've spent a bunch of time on this one and I I would um, use a data set that we have that says that there's seven financial habits that by and large um, differ between whether you are successfully sustained as a business owner and whether you're still struggling or still trying to figure it out. Um, and we found that of these seven habits, only one in, uh, only one out of four, so call it, you know, 25%, only one out of four do all seven. And those, you know, that 25% is head and shoulders above the others in terms of the performance. So what we would do is ask you, you know, do you do these things and also tell us about your business? Like how, you know, how how much are you earning and how is it trending and all these things? And so then you can start to, to correlate these things. Um, and so, um, you know, to, to not, uh, you know, hide the punchline for too long. I'm happy to me- mention these, these seven. And it's interesting because like I said, three out of four people are going to say, you know what, I don't do all those seven. Um, but it's things like, uh, if I go through the, the list here, it's, uh, regularly reviewing finances. And so you can define that how you'd like, but to actually have dedicated time to review your finances is one, uh, maintaining a budget. The second one, so this is just writing down in advance, what you think you're going to spend and what outcome you want to have. And then you can compare your performance to your budget. Um, not, you know, rocket science by any means, but it does take, um, take, take discipline. The, uh, another one is to save for taxes in advance. So some people, you know, have a system in place where every time they get paid, they take, you know, 30% and, you know, put it in a different account so that they don't overextend. But understanding that, you know, because you're not a W-2 anymore, you know, you gotta, you gotta handle your own taxes. Um, but setting aside that, that, um, savings for taxes is, is sort of, 
um, a big uh, financial habit. Um, another one is proactively reducing debt. So just you know, trying to uh, bring that down if you did take on debt for the business. Um, a fifth one is paying yourself a salary. Now, this is a really interesting one is how do you, you know, do you just, as the owner, you just get what's left over? Or do you, in fact, have some money that you pay yourself out of, out of the business? And, um, you know, the ones that are doing that um, are, are finding more success. And, you know, you got to, you got to, you know, it, it takes time to get there. You can have financial professionals that'll help you. But it, uh, in some ways, is interesting because it kind of gives you the security of the, of the paycheck, but you still get to, you know, sort of run, run, your, run your own business. Um, and then the last two, just to round out that, that seven that I was um, mentioning was um, your business structure, uh, you know, choosing your business structure. So, so do you want to be a sole prop or a partnership or an S-corp or what have you, but proactively choosing that structure is one because it does um, make a difference in the long run. And then uh, the seventh thing is um, a habit around maximizing your, your, your write-offs or your tax deductions. So whether you're tracking mileage or you're tracking home expenses uh, that are related to your office or um, what have you, but staying on top of that um, is the other one. And so I guess just to bring it back to that question, which is um, what advice would I give someone who, who you know, is running a business and wants to um, take it, you know, make sure it's a success and make sure it's sustainable would be make sure you're doing these seven things. Um, most people are doing at least some. There's nobody that's not doing any, you know, there's, there's none of these that are that, you know, you know, out, out of bounds that you, you, know, you couldn't take it on. And so you might need to partner with somebody, but it's, it's definitely in my mind, you know, back to this idea of what you can control. You can do these uh, seven things. And, you know, my, in, in my experience, it, it's going to make a, a world of difference for your business. Matt, let's go back to the very first one. It's an important one. And that is what numbers matter the most for a small business owner? And then, you know, your software is designed to help with this. How does it help keep an eye on those important numbers for a small business owner? Yeah, you know what? Great, great question. Because it's like you can almost, you know, you can drown in the reports and the data sometimes if you're not quite clear. I mean, certainly um, what I think is really important is income and expenses. So just, you know, how much am I earning versus how much am I spending? And then what's my, you know, sort of, uh, profit on that. A view on that is, is is super helpful. A second one would be something that gives you the ebb and flow of funds available. So um, whether you use your bank account for that or you plug it into some software like like ours, you want to understand if you're hitting a low point. Um, you certainly never want to you know write write that check that's going to you know bounce so to speak. But you'll if you can keep an eye on it, you'll tend to see that maybe your business has some seasonality or maybe. When you you know when you first bring on a new client, you got to outlay some costs, and so you need to you know build up before you bring on your next client. But you can start to understand what's you know what's kind of bringing the cash you know up and down. And then the third one is um, late late payment, uh, and that's one that we try to focus a lot on. Which is as soon as you log in, it's like how much money do I have outstanding? Um, and what we mean by that is you've you've sent an invoice, you've requested payment, and you haven't got paid yet. And so we want to help close that loop. A lot of um, you know, a lot of people expect, oh, I'm going to send it to and it'll be due upon payment. But a lot of, you know, businesses that people work for, you know, they don't pay unless it's on a, you know, 30-day net term or they just pay, you know, uh, like like the company that that I represent. Like when we hire um, a freelancer to work with us at FreshBooks, you know, we pay them through our own um, accounts payable cycle, which happens, you know, twice a month. And so, you know, if you miss that, that invoice coming in, then you got to wait a little longer. And so... Um, Anyway, the punchline there is just um, ensuring that you stay on top of people to, to pay you on time um, and to ensure that they do, in fact, pay. And so hopefully 
you know, sending an invoice is often, you know, viewed as this administrative thing and then chasing an invoice is even worse. Um, so we, we try to do that for you through some automation, but um, ultimately, you know, that's the kind of regular re- reviewing finances that I, that I have in mind. And that's an interesting thing because a lot of the two biggest fears I think that entrepreneurs that are just starting have is first of all, as we talked about sales, but collections, oh my gosh, calling people and saying, hey, where's my money? That, that's a real daunting task. It's nice to hear that the software makes it a priority because it's not money you can spend until you get it in your bank account, right? Yeah, and just to d- double click on that one, what I think has has helped us um, in this in that one in specific is so the, an example of how our software may work is that or or does work is that after you send an invoice, the system and then you can tell us you know how long before we send a follow up and whether or not you want to even charge late fees, but but you you can configure it how you want. But the idea is that you send an invoice. And then the system is following up based on however you, you know, um, uh, program the system, so to speak. But the system's following up to say, hey, this invoice is late or hey, this, you know, et cetera. So it's almost like we're being the bad guy for you. And that's how a lot of people experience it is that it's a way to have some kind of collections process in place, but not feel like they do have to do the one that, you know, it's sort of like having, uh, you know, uh, you know, somebody that's on your team that's helping you, you kind of reach that out. And people eventually get there if their business grows and they hire somebody in the finance department. And that finance person is often, you know, kind of chasing those things. But, but the more that, you know, we can do it, the better. And by the way, lots of people are moving to, to like, you know, a direct debit type of payment program where you, you know, you, you get the person to pay once as long as they understand the relationship, then, you know, the, the next one's just kind of auto pay. All those kinds of things are super helpful if that's um, you know a way that you can run your business if you have repeat uh, recurring type type customers because that yeah that chasing payment is like imagine just imagine I had to go to my employer you know they're a day late on payroll or something it's like hey can you get can you get me that check today it's just it, it you know it just it obviously does it's kind of silly right it doesn't make sense that you'd be chasing your employer for your for your for your paycheck so um, the fact that you know a lot of self employed folks are doing that and they're spending real time on it is you know, something that I think is, uh, it, it does create barrier to the success. And it's also something that's, that's solvable. So, it, you know, it gets me um, interested in the future. As Super. we think about those, those seven financial habits, though, when you really think about the, the, the breadth of the customers that you guys represent, when it goes wrong, where is it going wrong for those business owners? Well, you know, we certainly... Because, you know, we're in the small business market, you know, we certainly see lots of people who say, you know what, I just, I don't, I don't, I just don't need this, this product anymore because, hey, my business didn't make it or I got a full-time job or, you know, some, something along those lines. And so um, it's a signal to us that, you know, people are entering the market of self-employed and then, and then exiting, right? And, and I guess what we try to do is then go and say, okay, well, First of all, you know, you sorry to hear that, unless that's what you wanted, because some people are like, hooray, I got a, you know, I got a traditional job again. And if that's what they want, that's great. Um, other people, generally, when we dig into that, you know, to me, it, it's uh, most often a signal of not enough business coming in. So I, I had an idea, and I know I do good work, but I don't know how to find enough people that want, want my service or product or what have you. That is by and large. And that, that's sort of why it reinforces for me that, you know, the ability to, to have some kind of way that you understand sales or that you can do sales is the most important thing um, because you can solve some of those downstream things later. Um, but it's by and large, you know, I didn't have as many clients as I thought I would. 
or um, you know, I, I uh, you know haven't been able to to make as much. So it's kind of income related, and then the triggers tend to be enough uh, new clients, you know, coming in the door. And that's a harder one for us to think about solving, just because the 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 market is so fragmented in terms of the different types of businesses that are out there. So you know, whatever a lead is for one type of job is a different kind of lead for for another. But but certainly, um, you know, you can you can get by, and you know, maybe some people, you know, you can use some of those platforms we talked about earlier to. Um, to sort of pad your income if you're not you know, if you're not making enough, but ultimately, the, yeah, the, the biggest signal we get is um, the the they, they felt like the their idea of you know the standalone business didn't didn't quite get it, generate enough interest. Hmm. Wow, yeah, that's, I, I love what you guys are doing over there. It's it's a lot of yeah. I mean, it's kind of completely taken away a lot of frustration. I guess you could say that that the entrepreneur that you might not necessarily know how to handle. And they don't know how to do accounts receivable. They don't know how to do accounts payable. And so you guys help them with that. I love, love all that. Um, so one of the things I want to ask before we get in, into the end of the conversation and getting into the rapid fire questions is what do you see yourself doing in uh, the rest of this year and beyond yourself and with FreshBooks? You know, for me personally, I think we mentioned at the very beginning, I've been spending um, more and more time on international um, expansion. And so I'm been spending a considerable amount of time looking into the differences by market, particularly for people who are self-employed. And mm-hmm. it's really fascinating, but it also shows that we're going to a world in which, um, you know, it may, it may be more challenging to have a globally, you know, globally horizontal product. And so some of the legislation that's super interesting, you know, in the state of California, for instance, um, there was just a, a ruling that passed that um, uh, Uber and Lyft have to give their employees vacation days. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's going to just affect the you know this idea of is it a, is it a job or is it is it uh, self employment and then how am I treated? I was in uh, Italy not too long ago and they um, have instituted this e invoicing sort of compliance thing where the government gets a sort of a um, gets visibility into all the invoices that go from business to business. So you can imagine it's almost like a clearinghouse in the middle. And so something like that is going to affect a lot of you know how the um, you know how the uh, the country works in, in Canada, for instance. The the government's just opened up. Some, some talks about uh, this concept called open banking, which is just um, enabling more APIs out of banks is kind of one way to think about it. So um, anyway, this, the point of that is I'm going to spend a bunch of time just trying to understand these different compliance things because the tax, um, you know, the way that, you know, small businesses have to understand their tax uh, liability is different in all these countries. And we just want to make sure that we're not setting people up for failure ultimately. Right. Um, and so some, you know, you need to pay quarterly, some it's annually, some it's based on what you paid in tax, some it's based on profit. Anyway, it's just kind of, um, I mean, the last thing I want to do is read tax code for what it's worth, but, um, <laughs> but, <laughs> but getting my head around, you know, these different markets is, is, um, you know, is, is really important. So I'm going to be spending, you know, a bunch of time on that. And then, um, you know, overall for, for, uh, our business, um, we're continuing to try to invest in research that we feel like helps us for, for the business, but also shines a light for the people that are willing to, to read it and care about the market. So we do an annual sort of large-scale study around what it's like to be self-employed. We um, often look at, um, also split it out just by gender to say, you know, it, um, how, how, is, uh, how are women in self-employment um, feeling like things are going? Um, we look at it sometimes by generational around, you know, more and more, um, I think the largest group of self-employed now is finally millennial. Um, but for a long time, it was baby boomers and people just didn't realize that, you know, there's so many people that, um, are, you know, in that generation are still doing it. Cause when you read about it or you see it online, it's mostly, you know, people that are, um, earlier in their, in, in their careers. And so, 
Um, anyway, we'll continue to invest in a, in a bunch of data there. Um, other things are starting to prop up too around, you know, this idea of um, loneliness, you know, it, it, it also dovetails into sort of mental health and things like that. So that's a, you know, um, a new area to think about when you're self-employed is, you know, making sure that you're, um, you're you got a healthy mindset about your things too. So um, lots of exciting stuff, um, you know, on the, um, on the way, which, which, which is, which is great. Love it. Love it. So getting into the rapid fire question segment, first question is who are three favorite influential podcasts that you listen to on a regular basis? Great question. I, I try to always, you know, I, I have some larger scale podcasts that people would probably know, um, you know, just for entertainment purposes, but I also try to keep my finger in, uh, keep my pulse on uh, podcasts that are talking about things that are relevant to inspiration or the culture that you're, you know, you're creating and things like that. And so there's um, one podcast called Onward Nation that um, d- dives into um, things like, like culture, another one called Dose of Leadership that's a little bit about inspiration. Um, you know, I, I'm always trying to be a better leader myself, whether it's just one-on-one or in group settings, but you know, that's, that's a great one. And then I've also, um, the one that maybe is most known of those three would be this one called Conscious Millionaire which is, um, you know, I find interesting around the strategies of, you know, um, just being more thoughtful in, you know, your business, your business strategies as opposed to trial and error. Hey, Matt, what about one gift that maybe you like giving other people? Well, for a while here, if it was related at all to, to work into this, into this group, um, I uh, collaborated with one of our illustrators at FreshBooks, and we created um, a fun little children's book all about homonyms using um a lot of the illustrations that we have at FreshBooks. so we we have an illustrator and we do a lot of um illustrations as opposed to stock photos and things like that with mm. with our fresh so we we took a lot of that stuff and molded it into a children's book and so i for a while was 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 given that out um uh you know uh qu- quite a bit um and then the other thing that i think of is with my colleagues we have a system at work um that are called values cards and we have sort of nine core values as a business and um, if you see someone exemplifying one of those values, um, you're able to give them what we call a values card. It, you, know, you, you exchange that values card for sort of like a gift, gift certificate to, say, you know, Amazon or, or, or something like that. But the point is um, you're given the gift of recognizing that they're living up to, to a value. And um, you know, that, that, that program's been you know, a big success. So I, I try to lean on that when I, when I, find, when I feel like someone's going above what you know, the, the, the typical jo- job description would be. Excellent. What issue do you believe that people ought to be talking about yet? Hardly anyone is. Well, you know, it's probably going to sound a little bit like a broken record, but I just get into sales. You know, I just, Mm. um, it all, you know, kind of points to me around this being comfortable and recognizing and understanding that sales is a core part of being an entrepreneur, being a small business owner. I mean, frankly, I find it hard to find the right label because certain people gravitate towards others, which again, just shows that it's a, you know, it's a very diverse and, you know, fragmented network, but the ability to, um, to do sales and more help with sales, um, understanding that that's a key part of it. Um, you know, even when I think of, uh, you mentioned before, like, what are we not teaching in school that we ought to be teaching? Sales to me is top of the list. Um, there's not a lot of, uh, courses that really, you know, break that down. And in a lot of ways, you know, people, um, sometimes don't want a sales job, right? So it's almost like you're fighting the instinct that, oh, I don't want to do sales, but, but, but you know, you really ought to figure out how to do it your way. So um, again, like I said, yeah, broke, broken record a little bit, but 
but being able to prospect and bring on clients is, you know, for me, just, it, it's so, it just unlocks so much opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. So how about this one? When you become overwhelmed or unfocused, what do you do? Well, you know, my natural instinct um, is to just, is to go inward, to sort of escape, um, get to a place where I can think clearly and, you know, try to reset and calibrate and et cetera. And I kind of learned that through various types of, you know, personality tests and things like that. And then you kind of play back how things go in your life. And you're like, oh, okay, that was the kind of the behavior there is to, um, to do that. What I've tried to do more purposefully is feeling overwhelmed is to find ways to ask for help. Um, and by and large, that's always a better outcome. Um, I can still take a moment and sort of try to get my own, you know, arms around, okay, what's, what is it that's overwhelming me? Um, but ultimately not trying to just tackle it myself and, and finding some people that I can lean on. Uh, you know, anyway, for me, that's um, been such a such a help, and and by and large, people lo- love to help, and are, you know, are willing to to do so, um, or even just help you think about it differently. So, the, I guess the punchline there is um, avoid the uh, locking yourself in a room until you figure it out on your own, kind of thing. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And the final question: What's it mean to live a life of abundance? Yeah. Uh, excellent. I had a. Um, a professor once that shared with me um, what he was calling the secret, you know, the secret, the, the key to happiness or the secret to happiness, whatever, however you want to phrase that. Um, and he looked at a bunch of um, studies uh, and things around like uh, he, he, he was showing that people who win the lottery and they win millions of dollars um, often, you know, may have a short term spike. But long term, it doesn't necessarily make them happier people. Um, and that concept just kind of blew my mind at the time. It was like, well, you know, how does it not change your life? Cause you think like you get this check and tomorrow you're just a different person. Um, and, uh, anyway, the data proves it out that, you know, often it doesn't, sometimes people don't even hold on to the money and, you know, and if they do, you know, anyway, they have varying levels of, of, uh, of, uh, happiness as a result of winning that thing. And so what he argued was really the way to, to, to establish or, or have happiness is to set yourself up for a bunch, a series of consistent sort of short wins. And so if you can, you know, if you can have something that you're looking forward to and that you can kind of pat yourself on the back for every month, then that's ultimately that that's the key is it's not these, you know, huge spikes where you're going to win the lottery or, you know, you have this company and you sold it for millions of dollars or, you know, whatever your dream is, or you get famous, right? Like it's anyway, it's not these huge spikes, but rather it's, um, a consistent set of smaller but positive experiences that ultimately just keep keep you in that in, in that happier mindset. And so that's what I've tried to do uh, with my own life, um, whether it's you know at work or in my personal life with my family, um, is to have those consistent positive experiences that sort of lead towards this path, as you mentioned it, of a life of abundance. Mm, love it, love it. Well, Matt, uh, thank you again for spending some time with us today. Uh, again, you can be found via freshbooks.com. And uh, if people want to reach out to you on social media, where, how can they do that? Uh, great. I have a, a Twitter handle, which is uh, M Bakerson. So Matt, M for Matt, last name Baker, and then S-O-N on the end. So M Bakerson at, uh, at Twitter. And um, look forward to hearing from anyone. All right. Thank you again, Matt. And uh, it was a pleasure. Thank you both. So there you guys have it. 
I have to admit, what Matt and his colleagues are doing over there at FreshBooks is pretty awesome. You know, educating people about not only their finances, but what it takes to be an entrepreneur. And, and it totally makes sense. If you win as an entrepreneur and you're a client of theirs, they win because they get to keep your business. So with that in mind, they've actually put together a series of monthly events around the country called I Make a Living. And at these events, they discuss how people make a living as the employment and self-employment worlds keep changing. In the show note extras, I have a few videos of what you can expect from these events. And then to wrap things up, I also have a video where venture partner Sanjay Isinghal shares how to avoid small business bankruptcy. Again, all these videos can be seen via the show notes at newinceptions.com slash 160. So that's it for this session. Remember that if you want to check out fresh books, do so by visiting newinceptions.com slash fresh books, and you'll be sure to save on your new membership. Again, that's newinceptions.com slash fresh books. Thank you for spending a little bit of time with us today. And as always, we appreciate you guys joining in. Until next session, dig in, have fun and take care in whatever you're creating. And we'll see you back here next time. Thanks for listening to the Angles of Latitude podcast. Connect with us at home, at work, or on the go at facebook.com slash newinceptions, on Twitter at newinceptions, Instagram at new.inceptions, and on the web at newinceptions.com.